0: Revelation 2, chapter 12 through 17 is where we are this morning. Now, remember back in the early days of the internet when you used to get these chain emails? Maybe you still do. If you're of a certain age, you probably still do. Uh, But otherwise, you've probably converted to social media. But you used to get these chain emails and sometimes they were funny and sometimes they were informative and sometimes they were just bizarre. Uh, So this is one that went around in the mid to late 90s. And uh, it, it claimed to be from a manual given to Peace Corps volunteers who were headed to the Amazon where they have the anaconda, the big uh, long you know, boa constrictor snake, terrifying. So this was called what to do if you are attacked by an anaconda, okay? So here, are 10 instructions, you ready for this? Number one, if you are attacked by an anaconda, do not run, the snake is faster than you. Number two, lie flat on the ground. Put your arms tight against your sides, your legs tight against one another. Number three, tuck your chin in. Number four, the snake will come and begin to nudge and climb over your body. Number five, do not panic. (laughs) Number six, after the snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you from the feet and always from the feet. Permit the snake to swallow your feet and ankles. Do not panic. Number seven, the snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. Number eight, when the snake has reached your knee, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth between the edge of its mouth and your leg, then suddenly rip upwards, severing the snake's head. Number nine, be sure you have your knife. Number 10, be sure your knife is sharp. Now that's all baloney. I want you to know that's not true. Uh, it's it's somebody made it up because anacondas don't eat live prey; they squeeze it to death first. So I, I have no uh, advice for you if you're attacked by an anaconda, except to say take comfort in the fact that you will be gently and lovingly hugged to death. Okay, uh, but what I do have for you is a warning that is related but much more important and, and much more relevant. So. Actually, those last two instructions are actually pretty important in what we're gonna talk about today. Be sure you have your knife. Be sure your knife is sharp. We're studying in this series the instructions that Jesus gave to the seven churches who were the first recipients of the book of Revelation. We don't often think this way, but the book of Revelation is actually a letter it's a letter to the Christians two thousand years ago, who were the first ones to really experience the full force of Roman persecution. You know, there was some limited persecution uh, in the city of Rome under Nero, but under under this. Under this Caesar, in in and around the year one hundred, the the pressure got hard, and it would it would be strong at, in various degrees for the centuries to come. Jesus wanted these Christians to know: here is what you need to understand. Here is who wins in the end. Here is how you stay faithful to me. But in chapters two and three, he has specific instruction for each of those churches. And my contention is those instructions still relate to our world and our churches today. You and I are responsible for what happens here at First Baptist Conroe. If you're a member of this church, you're not just a a member of the audience. You have committed to say to God, okay, I am gonna help this church be all that she can be. And part of that means taking seriously the warnings in scripture that God writes and, and has to say to his people. So what does God say? What does Jesus say to this third church? Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. as the place where Satan lives, where his throne is, where he dwells. Why does he say that? I mean, we can be confident that wasn't on the billboard outside town. The, the Chamber of Commerce did not advertise Pergamum as the city where Satan lives. So where does Jesus get this from? There are three theories that I know of. One is there was a, a very large and impressive altar to Zeus, the, the the head of the Greek god, the head of the Greek pantheon in Pergamum. Interestingly, if you care about this sort of thing, that altar is now in, a, in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. And you can see it online. It looks like the front steps of a county courthouse. Uh, second theory is that there was also a temple to the Greek god Asclepios in Pergamum. Now that one probably isn't as familiar to most of you, but you know his symbol because it was a brass pole with a snake wrapped around it. That's the symbol of the medical profession today. Asclepios was considered the Greek god of healing, and so Pergamum was a place that people would come as pilgrims to be healed. But there's a third theory, and this is the one I hold to, and that is it's because of the persecution that these people were already experiencing. They were on the leading edge of this Roman persecution and one of their members had already been martyred for the faith. We don't know anything else about this guy Antipas, except that he had died for Jesus and he was the first of many to come. Either way, here's what I want you to know, and I probably don't need to say this to most of you, but I do need to say this just in case. Evil is real and it is concentrated in a personal figure that the Bible calls Satan, the devil, the prince of darkness, Beelzebub, uh, so many other terms in the scriptures, the enemy, uh, and he is real. I know that sounds primitive to modern ears, but there is no doubt when the scripture talks about Satan, it's talking about an actual being, not just a, an, a disembodied force. There are spiritual forces of evil, as it says in Ephesians six twelve. for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is writing then to say, don't get all hot and bothered about people you don't like in this world, people who are mean to you, people who oppose you. Those are just people. They're not your enemies. Not really. They're just people for whom Christ died. Your real enemy is unseen. That's the one you need to worry about. That's the one you need to be, you need to oppose. Paul says don't be afraid of him, but guard yourself against him. And that's what we wanna talk about today. So be sure you have your knife, and be sure your knife is sharp. Let's talk about the tactics the devil used in Pergamum because his playbook doesn't change. The devil is a lot of things, but he's not original. He doesn't come up with new ideas. These are the things he used in Pergamum. Number one, he used external persecution. So martyrdom. economic troubles and even physical imprisonment and, and murder and violence. Uh, Tertullian, the, the great church father who was a few decades after the book of Revelation, said this rarely works. His quote was, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So wherever the devil pours out persecution on churches, oftentimes it backfires because the gospel spreads all the faster. As the people of the world look and see how faithful we are in the face of this fire, they say there must be something real going on there. And that's why, believe it or not, there are Christians in other countries, this, I don't know how this is gonna rub some of you, but there are Christians in other countries praying that Christians in America would experience persecution because they know we need revival. And maybe that'll shake us out of our lethargy and our our, our spiritual mediocrity. I do know this, I do know this. That there's still persecution going on in the world today. You can you can look at resources like Voices of the Martyrs or Open Doors USA or Persecution.com and you can read stories of of people being attacked in their churches in Nigeria, and the underground church in Iran that's spreading in spite of the, the oppressive nature of that, of that society, and North Korea and China, where the government, the communist government, does their best to stop the spread of the gospel. You know, we often say as American Christians, God bless America, and he has. We often thank God for our freedoms, and we should, because we are, we are the freest people who've ever lived on this planet. But in the midst of thanking God for our freedom, we need to also pray for our brothers and sisters who are right in the crosshairs of evil as we speak. Now, there's a second tactic the devil uses, and this one tends to be more effective, and that is false teaching. Jesus refers to a couple of different kinds of false teaching in his letter to the church at Pergamum. First of all, he says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, if you have a really good memory, uh, you may recall that in the first letter, the, church, the letter to the church at Ephesus, he mentioned the same group. The Nicolaitans, from what we read from some, some things outside scripture uh, from that time, the Nicolaitans were a group that believed that you, didn't, you weren't saved by grace. You know, it wasn't enough to just believe in Jesus and trust in his death on the cross. No, you needed secret, special knowledge in order to truly be saved. You, there was a higher knowledge, a higher class. And if you got this secret knowledge, you were one of the, the chosen ones. And as a chosen one, you could do anything you want. You could, you could swap wives with your, with your friend if you wanted. God didn't care, your body doesn't matter. You belong to him and so you're saved no matter what you do. And that teaching spread through the ancient church as a, as a heresy. He also mentions the teaching of Balaam. Now this is something we do recognize from the scriptures. Balaam was the guy in Numbers 22 who had a talking donkey just once, but his donkey spoke to him. It just, if you're not familiar with the story, you can read it later. For my money, it's the funniest story in the Bible about a pagan prophet who was paid by one of the enemies of Israel to go and curse the Israelites, but he couldn't because God wouldn't let him. One of the ways God told him you better not do this is he had his donkey speak to him. My favorite part of the story is that, that Balaam gets in an argument with his own donkey and loses. <laughs> but there's a less funny sequel to the story because Balaam went back to the king who had hired him and said, listen, if you really want to bring down the Israelites, you're not going to beat them with weapons and you're not going to them, bring, bring them down with curses. What you have to do is, is get them to stop worshiping their God because it's their God who is their strength. And if they stop worshiping their God and they get outside of his covering, they'll be as weak as any other people. And so he said, "Just you can't beat them with swords, and you can't beat them with prayers. So beat them with wine, women, and song. Uh, invite them to one of your pagan parties, and let them see how much fun you have. Because their god is a god who demands absolute morality and absolute uh, obedience from head to toe. And, and your gods, they don't, they don't demand that. They let you do all kinds of of enjoyable things with your bodies, and and eat and drink whatever you want. And and so let them see that, and they'll be convinced and." And, and then you'll have them. And that's exactly what happened. And all through the Old Testament, there are references backwards saying, let's not do what we did at Peor, which is where that happened, where they worshiped Baal and lost their protection. And so we can imagine, we can just sort of infer that in the church at Pergamum, there were people who were saying similar things like, hey, look at, look at our pagan neighbors and they seem to be having more fun than we are. They, they can do whatever they want. And by the way, if we, if we go live like them, then maybe we won't be so persecuted because we stand out the way we live now. And maybe if, we're, if we fit in, maybe people will leave us alone. And we could see how that kind of teaching would spread as well. And you might say, okay, Jeff, that's fine, but what does that have to do with us? I don't know anybody in in Conroe, any church in Conroe that teaches that kind of stuff. So why do we need to worry about this? Well, because the devil still uses the same tactics. Maybe the the content of the teaching is different, but the devil loves to sow false teaching into the church any way he can. Let me give you a few scriptures. This comes up all through the Bible, but let me give you four. Number one is Matthew 7.15 where Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. See, the fact is, false teachers don't advertise themselves as false. They don't say, hey, I got some stuff that's not in the Bible, but it's better than scripture. They don't say that. They present themselves as being faithful. And there's enough, of, there's enough truth in what they say that if you're not careful, you'll believe them. And so this is why Jesus goes on in that same passage to say, You will know them by their fruits. Judge a preacher by his fruit. And fruit, you understand, does not mean the size of his church or the size of his giftedness. And it doesn't mean that he's getting people to walk the aisle or or that that he's very charming or he's very dynamic. Fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not just in Galatians 5. All through the scriptures, whenever fruit is mentioned, it refers to character. It doesn't refer to results. So so be careful with the guy who just seems to be such a powerful preacher and every time he preaches, boy, I'm just locked in, he's got me. But he doesn't have a Christ-like personality. He doesn't walk with the Lord. He doesn't doesn't demonstrate those fruits of the Spirit. He's he's not patient. He's, He's not unselfish. He's not kind. And by the way, this is why, yeah, it's fine to have these famous pastors that you, you follow their work on podcast or, or you read their books and, and I have a few like that and that blesses me, but hold those guys loosely because you don't know them. And it turns out sometimes they're snakes, aren't they? Sometimes they are. Your, your primary spiritual leadership should come from someone you know, somebody whose life you can observe. Make sure you're careful with that. Here's a second one, Acts 20, verses 29 through 30. This is Paul. He's gathered the elders from the church at Ephesus, the church that he himself planted, and he says this to them. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Yeah, I'm leaving you. I'm never gonna see you again, and I'm sad to say some of you guys are going to become false teachers. So the rest of you watch out for them and don't let this happen. The good news is that when we read the letter that Jesus writes to Ephesus in, in, you know, that we looked at two weeks ago, the Ephesians were solid in their doctrine. They had listened to the warning of Paul. Unfortunately, they had lost their first love but they had listened to Paul in this. Second Peter 2, verse one, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And that's an indication of what really matters. It's about the master, it's about Jesus. That's what matters. Listen, I'm not saying that in this church or any other church, we all have to think the same about Everything. There are going to be things you and I disagree upon. Uh, there are going to be interpretations of scripture. There are going to be secondary theological issues where you and I disagree. I'll give you an example. I know for a fact that some of you disagree with me about the interpretation of the whole book of Revelation and how the end is coming and, and, and what that's going to look like. That's Okay. Because guess what, if you disagree with me, it's still gonna happen one way or another. We're we're gonna get there and go, oh, okay, so that's what it was like. This is not essential. This is important, but it's not essential. But when you get to who Jesus is, what God is like, what it really means to be saved, those those are first order issues. Those are things that we have to agree on. Those are things that are worth causing division within the church when it's necessary. And then there's 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Hear me now. If it's a preacher or teacher who everything they say endorses your current way of thinking and your current priorities, if they hate all the same people you hate, if everything they say makes you feel better about yourself, you're not hearing from God. Because God is always pushing and stretching you. If you're hearing the the preaching of the word of God, there are gonna be times when you feel personally a little bit offended. There are gonna be times when you think, oh, well, that's different than the way I think. I need to go to the word of God and make sure that's true because if it is, I need to change. See, if if you don't worship a God who can tell you you're wrong, then you're not worshiping God. And, And your preaching needs to be something more than just amen, brother, you preach it. You hear me? It, it better be that way. See, culture today rejects absolute truth. And this makes, this makes the, the spreading of false doctrine all the more easy. We need to know that we're, we're in a time when there's more false doctrine within the church and in the culture than there's ever been. This is more relevant today than it has ever been and I know I know people would say hey what does it matter as long as you believe what you believe with sincerity as long as you're tolerant of people who don't think like you then that's all that matters but but think about it this way when you go to the pharmacy and you get a prescription you know how they give you that that big stack of paperwork that comes with your prescription do you ever sit and read that I hope you at least glance over it because there's important information in there. The people who made that, people who do this for a living, they've said, okay, here's what this drug is for, but it's not for all of these other things over here. And here here are some possible side effects and here's some interactions. So you don't want to take this with this. You need to know that stuff. Now let's say you wake up in the middle of the night and you've got a headache and you go to your medicine cabinet and you open it and you see a bottle of pills there and you think, well, that looks good. Yeah, I bet that works. And you look on the side and it says take two and you think, well, if two works, 10 will work even better. Does it matter how sincere you are in that belief? Does it matter that you're tolerant of, of your spouse who tells you you're an idiot for taking uh, stomach medicine for a headache? Yes, it, it, it does matter. It, it matters that the truth is the truth. And in an even greater way, God's word is true. His inerrant, inspired word is absolute truth, whether we want to believe it or not. And we can't change that. If we're smart, if we're smart, we'll listen to it. In fact, Jesus twice refers to blades in this letter. He he talks about himself as being the one who holds the sharp sword, and later talks about, I will come and destroy you with the sword of my mouth. You know what the sword of the Spirit is according to Ephesians six? It's the word of God. So ask yourself the question. Do I have my knife? Is my knife sharp? In other words, do I know the word of God? I know so many Christians who will say, well, I know I should know the Bible better, I just don't. And they say that as if, it, as if it's praiseworthy to be humble about your knowledge of scripture, but it's not. There's no excuse, my friends, there's none. I mean, even if you are illiterate, you got the Bible in audio form. You can, you can use your smartphone to let your Bible read to you. So my question for you is, are you getting the word of God into your mind on a daily basis? On a daily basis, are you feeding yourself in the word? Some of you will read three or four chapters a day so you can get through the whole Bible in a year. Some of you, that's too much, so you do a chapter. Some of you, you just do little, little sentences at a time, a few verses at a time, because that's, that's what feeds your soul the best. But when you are steeped in the truth, then the lie will seem obvious. It won't be hard to spot. Now now let me just back up and say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I want us to be heresy hunters, to walk around with this smug attitude that says, I know the truth and, and I'm smarter than you and anything I disagree with you on, well, I'm gonna call you out for it. And if, if something comes up in our life group or in a worship service that I don't like, I'm going to stand up and scream heretic and burn her at the stake. And that's not what I'm talking about. There are people, and there's a lot of them online, who, that is their whole persona. They are just hunting for things to disagree with and to brand people as heretics. That's not what I'm talking about. Jesus, when he was being crucified, was kind to the people who were spitting in his face. I think you and I can be kind to people we disagree with. And within the church, the unity of God's people is so important to him. So when you disagree with something you've heard in life group, in church, go talk personally to the person who said it and just say, listen, I, I just I wanna know, I just wanna make sure you and I are on the same page. Is this what you said? Is this what you mean? I've had that conversation several times in this church. People have come to me and said, Jeff, I, I heard you say this the other day. And Did you really say it? Did I hear you right? Or, or Jeff, is this really what you believe? Is that, is that true? Where do you find that in the scriptures? And I love having those conversations because that tells me two things. It tells me that the people of my church care about the truth. And it tells me that they have enough grace about them that they came to me personally. And they came to me with a a gracious heart. They didn't come come ready, looking for an excuse to, to kick me to the curb. They came hoping we were in agreement. And so far, so good, right? So far, so far, I think we're doing well. But I'm asking you to hold me accountable. And I'm asking you to hold others accountable in a gentle, in a in a humble, in a gracious way. So, so let me just leave you with this. My, my wife and I, Carrie, we our first date was December second, nineteen eighty nine, and you know what else happened that day? Andre Ware won the Heisman Trophy for the University of Houston. We went to the game that day and Houston beat Rice 64 to nothing. Yes, I remember that score. And then later they gave him the trophy. That was the second best thing that happened that day, second to my date with my future wife. Uh, we, we went out on that date and then a week later we went to the Nutcracker and then I went home for Christmas because college break is awesome. I, I missed that a whole month off for Christmas, right? And, and so I went home and... I drove up to see her one time and then came back home and immediately wrote a letter and put it in the mail. Yes, yes, millennials, there was this thing called mail once that people used to communicate with each other and that's what I did. And I put it in the mail and I I sat back and and you'd say, well, why didn't you call her? Well, cell phones didn't exist. And so in order to call somebody long distance, you had to pay, which meant my parents had to pay. And I didn't want to ask my parents to let me call my new girlfriend long distance because I didn't know what they would say. But I sent her a letter, you know, put some thought into it. About a week passed. I didn't receive a reply. And I thought that was a little suspicious. So I called her on the phone. I asked my parents first. They said, go ahead. And and I called her and and we chatted for a while. I could tell she seemed a little distant and I, I was wondering what had happened. And I said, listen, are you mad at me about something? She said, yeah, I mean, it's been over a week since you talked to me. What's going on? And I said, well, didn't you get my letter? And she said, what letter? And I said, I sent you a letter the day I got back. And she said, I have not gotten a letter from you. So as soon as I hung up, I wrote her a second letter and apologized with all my heart. I said, I should have just called you instead, but you know, please forgive me and, and put that in the mail. The two letters arrived on the same day. So now it looks like I'm lying and then I've written two letters to, to cover my lie. Meanwhile, she's got friends and family back home that are saying, well, it seems like he must have a girl back there in Yokum. They didn't know the Yoakum girls apparently, but, uh, <laughs> and so she's like, yeah, yeah, he's probably two-timing me. Now we made it, obviously. We made it, no thanks to the U.S. Postal Service. Um, my point is this. That was back when we barely knew each other, when we were at a distance from one another. And so when we suspected one another of something, our imaginations could run wild, there was no real way to check. But now, now we live in the same home we have for 30 years. Now if she's got a problem with me or I with her, we just go to each other, right? Your relationship with Jesus is even more important than my relationship with Carrie. If you've got a question about God, if you hear something that disturbs you if, you, if you encounter a new way of thinking and you're like, I'm not sure if that's true or not, there's an easy solution. Go talk to God about it. His word is right there. You can, you can talk it out in your life group. You can, you can pray and say, Lord, show me the truth. But don't wonder, don't speculate, don't let your imagination run wild, go to the source. And by the way, if you're wondering why you should trust this God, keep in mind, he's the one who died for you. He's the one who let the snake swallow him so he could kill it from the inside. So you could go free. Who does that but a God who truly loves you?